Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f What the f gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, I've received a few suggestions for different podcasts. Nelson, quite a while ago, suggested I get a hold of one of the composting toilet companies, Airhead, and the other one is Nature's Head. And I know Neil plans on putting a composting toilet in his boat in the next year or so. So I did get a hold of Airhead. Just to let you know, there is an upcoming episode at some point in time in the future, but I don't know when. His problem seems to be that he doesn't have easy internet access at his office, so he has to go to a coffee shop to do a Skype interview. And and I think I'm just going to wait until they're moved to their new location where they have good internet access. So, Nelson, I appreciate that suggestion, and I'm working on it. If you have some other suggestions, let me know. Got a couple other emails I want to share them with you. Jack got a hold of me. He's sailing around Croatia right now. In fact, right now he may be down in Montenegro, and then he's going to be heading to Sicily uh, to winter in Sicily. But it's good to hear from him. I'm going to be doing another interview with Jack Andrews and his wife. He said the big problem he's had this summer in cruising in the Mediterranean is he hasn't had any time to <laughs> to just go sailing that they've had so many guests on the boat that they're always having to get from point A to point B to pick up their next guest and point C to drop their guests off and then point D to pick up the next guest. So I guess they really haven't had much time just as a family on their boat to enjoy cruising. And I told Jack, I said, you just got to give yourself a couple weeks where you don't have anybody on board but the family and enjoy it that way. And he says, yeah, we're going to work on that. Anyway, I look forward to talking to Jack again. He sent me a picture of him sitting in Havar at a coffee shop, looking across the bay. And I've probably sat in that same coffee shop and had a similar cup of coffee, Jack. So it looked very familiar when you sent me that picture. Then I got an email from Kamau. And I think he's been interviewed on a couple other podcasts in the past. The name sounds familiar. Anyway, he says, I'm a professional commercial builder and an amateur boat builder. I've been following your podcast for a few months and just love it. Good job. I wanted to pick your brain about your boat build project as I'm building a 54-foot cruising boat and would love to hear the lessons you've learned. Maybe we could even do a joint broadcast. I have a small YouTube channel, 1,600 subscribers, and the name of that YouTube channel is I-A-N-D-I-B. Boats, B-O-A-T-S. So, Kamau, I've sent you about three emails now, and I haven't heard back from you. So if you're listening to this podcast, get back a hold of me. Let's do it. And then another email from, from Dave. I won't pronounce his last name, but Dave. Dave said, thanks for another great podcast. While I understand the desire to rename your podcast, we have yet to see that Andy's rename of 51 North Podcast is making things better. Maybe. But since you're covering Sweden and other areas, I propose you keep the original branding, maybe extend it, sailing in the Mediterranean and beyond. 
advice worth what you paid for it. No, I actually kind of like that name. I don't know yet. I'll think about it. Then he said, I wanted to send you a note of thanks. You may recall that I requested ideas for Croatian sailing itineraries, and you kindly did two podcasts on this topic. I took my family sailing from Split through a number of islands in July this summer. Based on your ideas, we chartered a 40-foot catamaran from Sunsail and had a wonderful time. We loved the small harbor towns of Molina on Brac and numerous other small bays on Havar. The town of Havar and the hike to the fortress above it was spectacular. The Palenque Islands were packed with Euro kids and sailors blasting techno pop. And so after one night, we took off for more tranquil and historic island of Vis. We discovered Tito's Hidden Caves, a beautiful 15th century church on top of the island with incredible sunset views of the bay, town and marina of Comiza, a very old port dating back 1,300 years. The sailing was great, especially when we got into the more open ocean away from the island. Steady winds afternoon of 18 to 20 knots. Next time we will go for two weeks. The north of Split looks amazing, so many islands. We also loved our time in Dubrovnik and highly recommend it to everyone. Thanks for your informative and entertaining podcast. Maybe we will ski together one day in Utah. Pray for snow this year. Well, Dave, we've already had snow. I went up to the summer home yesterday, and there was snow on the ground when I got there. Of course, it melted off by noon, but it looks like it's going to be a, a good snowy year in Utah. At least it's looking that way so far. The snow had melted when I left in the afternoon, but we've had snow already, so that's good. I appreciate your comments. Thanks for letting me know about your travels in Croatia. And I wrote you back an email saying, come on and let me pick your brains about your adventures, and I haven't heard back from you. So so get back with me, Dave, if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast. That would be great for you to share your experiences with others. Now, speaking of that, I did talk to Jack on Skype the other day. And I said, Jack, why don't you and your family just sit around a recorder someday and start talking about your adventures and produce your own episode? And if you put it together, I will just do an introduction and an exit, and you can have your own episode. And anybody else out there that have stories to tell that they would like to share with others, this is an audio format. Get an MP3 recorder or a wave recorder and talk about your adventures and share them with us. You don't have to have me interview you. If you have good stories to tell, as long as they're somewhat G or PG rated, I'll put them on the podcast. So anybody out there thinking that they'd like to share their stories with me, get a hold of me and I'll let you know how you can submit them to me. It would be through a Dropbox folder because those files would be fairly large. So I got a letter from Radu, so let me read it. I got to say I'm listening to your podcast using Play Google while at work, and I enjoy it 100%. Thank you for spending your time and effort doing the podcast. I was born in Romania and moved to the States back in 1998, currently living in Vancouver, Washington, close to the Columbia River. I do not own a sailboat or have any sailing experience, but I'm fascinated by this idea. As a teenager, I built scale model sailboats, and that's pretty much how close I got to sailing. Drop me an email if you ever come over to Portland. I would love to have a local beer with you and chat. By the Columbia River, of course. Thanks again. Radu, thanks for sending that email. I really appreciate it. If anybody else out there has ideas, suggestions, comments, drop me an email. Use the contact form at the website. 
or use Franz1 at MedSailor.com. Today I'm talking to Hugh Morrison. Hugh Morrison participated in the Corsica Classic Regatta. Now I came across the Corsica Classic Regatta just while doing some general web searching and browsing, and it looked like a fantastic regatta to participate in. A lot of classic boats or wannabe classic boats or boats designed like classic boats take part in this regatta. And so I went through the list. I went to the website and I went through the list of the boats that were participating in the Corsica Classic. And one of the boats that was scheduled to race was the Yacht Manitou. And I did some research on the Yacht Manitou. And the Yacht Manitou, or the name of the boat, Manitou, was the boat that was owned by JFK, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, built in 1937. And I tried to get a hold of the people that own the boat, and it turns out it's owned by a corporation registered in Newport, Rhode Island. And I was able to get an address to send a letter, not not an email, but a physical letter to this address. And I got a response from the person that represented the company a few weeks later. And he actually sent me an email and said he lives in Denver and he's one of the representatives or one of the owners of the boat. But it didn't participate in it. But still, I was hoping I would be able to interview him because that's a classic, classic American yacht with a lot of history to it. So I'm still working on that. Hopefully, I'll be able to talk to him. But So one of the boats, Savannah, which was scheduled to participate in the regatta, was a member of the Royal Yacht Squadron. So I sent an email to Nigel Southward, who's also a member of the Royal Yacht Squadron, and asked him for an introduction to the owner of Savannah. And through that introduction, I was able to talk to Hugh Morrison. And so in this interview, I talked to Hugh Morrison about his boat, about the regatta. And as a result of this interview, I'm kind of curious about regattas in the Mediterranean. I've never participated in a regatta in the Mediterranean. I came across the Aegean Yacht Rally one time, and I've told a story about that in past podcasts, when my friend Bud and I were port-bound due to really nasty weather, the entire fleet of the Aegean Yacht Rally. And we ended up going to dinner with them and getting to know a lot of the participants in the regatta. And that was sponsored by Setter Marinas in Turkey. That was one of the sponsors of that, of that yacht rally. But I haven't participated in any, and it sounds like it might be something I should check out. So if you know anybody that's organizing regattas in the Mediterranean or have suggestions on people I should talk to about regattas in the Mediterranean primarily, let me know. So, quick advertisement, if you're studying for the ASA 101, 103, or 104, I have audio lessons that I put together for those courses. I cannot teach you how to sail, but I can get your mind thinking in the right direction about sailing and the terminology of sailing through my audiobooks. Now, you can sample eight free lessons for the ASA 101 by signing up for my email list. And if you like those, maybe you'll buy them. All right, let's get on to my interview with Hugh Morrison.
introductory music is the music that you get when you go to the website of the Corsica Classic Regatta, which is corsica-classic.com. And the reason you're hearing that is today I'm interviewing Hugh Morrison. Hugh Morrison is the owner of a yacht named Savannah, and Savannah was a participant in the Corsica Classic this year. So I've got Hugh Morrison on the line. Hugh, you're talking to me from Great Britain, correct? Yes, I'm talking to you from London, where it's a surprisingly sunny October day. The, the way I got a hold of you was I met Sir Nigel South... Southern. Okay. Sir Nigel. I just call him Nigel, So, <laughs> which, is, which is not proper, but that's all right. I've met Nigel on my boat in, uh, in Brindisi, and later on I saw him in in uh, Croatia, and he turns out to be a member of the Royal Yacht Squadron, which you're also a member of. I am, yes. And the reason I got a hold of you is I was doing some research on regattas in the Mediterranean, and there's a regatta called the Corsica Classic, which is a regatta for classic yachts. And, And your boat is one of the boats... Uh, one of the, I guess what I was looking for is, is boats that had English-speaking skippers on them, and you are one of the two or three that actually had somebody that I could probably talk to, which was a participant. So tell me a little bit about Savannah, the name of your boat. That's the name of your boat. And tell me about your sailing experience, your background, and then we'll get into the more detail about the, the regatta. Well, I'm very, uh, very fortunate to to be the owner of Savannah. She's a for those people who are familiar with the J-class yachts of the 1930s, she's a two-thirds replica of those J-class boats, so she's 90 feet long. Um, she looks and is based on Endeavour, which, uh, to my mind, was one of the one of the prettiest of the J-class. And uh, she's constructed out of Kevlar and carbon fiber. Although uh, I think you'd have to be a real You'd have to be on the inside to know it because she she sits in Saint-Tropez Harbour through the winter and almost everyone believes that she's uh, an absolute wooden classic. So she's been lovingly put together by the Concordia Yard in Massachusetts. And the interpretation of her from Endeavour was done by the wonderful Dave Pedrick, uh, their designer. And the interior was done by Britain's own John Mumford. So she's as true to the original Endeavour as is possible, complete with wood-burning stove, roll-top baths, library, uh, and, uh, and, and really comfortable sofas. Not exactly what you'd call a racing boat, but certainly a gentleman's cruiser and designed as a day sailor. And now, that's where the similarity with, uh, with the J-Class ends. She's got a 100-foot-tall uh, rig. Um, the spinnaker on her is about 420 square meters, uh, the uh, the 
keel form is a racing keel form, and she's incredibly fast. So she's not allowed to sail specifically in the classic uh, uh, regatta fleets, and they have a number of boats like her in the in the Mediterranean, including some of the J classes which have been restored, such as Shamrock. And we race in a class which is called Spirit of Tradition. So, uh, so she was built in 1997, and she sailed down through the Caribbean, and she was very successful in a number of regattas. And I managed to take her on about 10 years ago, and it's been an absolute pleasure ever since. We race in a uh, in a in a very good series of uh, of regattas, mostly organised by Panerai, the uh, the Italian watch company, um, and they have some of the best destinations I think in the Mediterranean, ranging from Antibes, Cannes, uh, Ajaccio, Argentario, uh, has one in uh, it goes up to Britain, uh, Mahon next year. And uh, all over the Mediterranean, you can effectively find these regattas, and there's a circuit for classic yachts. So sometimes they can have as many as 80 uh, entrants, and the Corsica Classic, which is not part of the Panerai circuit, but we'll come on to it, I'm sure, it has about uh, it has about 30, 30 entries, maybe 35 entries, and probably about 10 or 15 other yachts who are following on. So it gives you a little bit of uh, color to the boat. She has uh, hydraulics, so uh, that's pretty efficient, so she could be sailed short-handed. And sometimes we race with 30 people on board. And uh, for the Corsica Classic this year, I felt it was a perfect opportunity to take my uh, teenage and pre-teenage uh, children uh, sailing. So there were three of them, and uh, myself, and then I have two permanent uh, crew on board and my partner and we had an absolute field day if you can imagine a relatively short crew like that with relatively little experience as far as, as, far as the children are concerned um, in handling a spinnaker of that sort of size then um, then you can you can imagine the sort of regatta it would have had to have been for us to make sense of entering it in other words very Corinthian uh, fantastic hospitality and brilliantly organized so I'm I'm just trying to imagine handling a spinnaker of that size with that short of a crew. Now, obviously, your children have some sailing experience, so they know how to handle the spinnaker already. They have uh, they have very little experience, but we were very we were very conservative, and uh, we'll get on to talk a little bit about the event, I'm sure. But it was a uh, it was a good one to introduce the children to sailing on because uh, it is so Corinthian because the the weather is, uh, is is predictable to the extent that you can tell if it's going to be windy clearly with a short crew we wouldn't use a spinnaker and as it's uh, as on some days uh, it was uh, with borderline we made sure that we had plenty of margin for error so we allow a lot of water for the drops and um, we make sure that we hoist in a very conservative way. In fact, because we were the biggest boat in the regatta and because Savannah um, goes upwind at about nine, nine and a half knots and can go downwind anything up into the sort of 14, 15 knots and the sort of breeze we had, we were, we were asked to effectively not put our sails up until the rest of the fleet had started. And to uh, and to make sure that uh, and to make sure that we went below everybody going upwind, and um, so we made a lot of friends, and it was a great fun thing to do. And our real race was whether we could get to the front of the fleet before the end of the race. 
uh, and it was a great. Uh, the children all drove. Uh, in fact, in two or three races, they drove for the majority of it. And these are races of about six hours long. Um, and so it was a, a great Corinthian family affair in some of the most spectacular countryside and uh, and uh, beaches in the Mediterranean. Well, tell me a little bit about your sailing experience. How did you start out sailing? I started out sailing in the east of England in some of the muddiest and narrowest tidal ditches that England has. Uh, and we, and it was very much dinghy sailing and then uh, graduating to uh, catamarans and tornadoes and racing uh, and then through into, into monohulls and working my way, as many people do, from the front of the boat to the back of the boat and ending up uh, navigating and just going down and doing every weekend in the, in the filthy weather we occasionally have in England. And, um, and all the way through that, you build up a very good team of people around you that you're, or that you're a part of. And slowly, when one major race program ended, uh, the opportunity to, to buy Savannah came up. And uh, so I really had a ready-made community of uh, fellow sailors and, and crewmen who, who moved on to Savannah with me. And uh, we had a... Uh, uh, we had great fun. Some of our first regattas were, uh, were slightly overgunned with, with expertise, but um, we've managed to balance that out in the intervening years. So you, you've sailed with as many as 30, but when you sail with that many, they don't all sleep on board, do they? No, we've got very little accommodation on board. So uh, it, there's, we've only really done one big uh, uh, offshore race, uh, with her, and that's everyone needing to sort of share the bunks in in, uh, in, a, in a pretty unsavory style. So we try to avoid that um, because we we can only really accommodate nine people on board, and that's with people sleeping on sofas. And uh, we could do that. I think some people slept on the floor when we were racing, but we try to avoid it. It's a day sailor, and, um, and it's a it's a very well appointed day sailor. It's a very a very comfortable boat, but uh, it only has effectively six proper berths. Was this the first boat you actually owned yourself? Were you a boat owner prior to Savannah? Oh, I started out, I, I, I spent my first night afloat on a folk boat and fell in love with it when I was about uh, nine. Um, as a, uh, a late teenager, I bought a Contessa 26, uh, which, was, uh, which was wonderful, and then graduated to something that I couldn't believe could be so large, which was a Contessa 32, and, and really sailed those, those boats from the sort of 1970s. And um, I'm 54 now, so uh, so you can imagine they were they were a proven design by the time I got my hands on them, and really worked up in terms of boat ownership from there. Where did you buy Savannah? At? Was it in the was it in the UK or was it in the Mediterranean? Where did you pick her up at? Well, she'd done a successful Caribbean circuit. Uh, she'd been to Antigua. She'd won the uh, the Concorde d'Elegance, and she'd also won the Antigua uh, Classics, Spirit of Tradition class. She'd done. She'd come across from the. Um, uh, she'd come across to the UK for the uh, Jubilee Regatta in 2000. I think she'd done very well there, and she'd cruised up around the sort of territory that you'd been, and she got up to Scandinavia. And then I, I came across her in the. Um, well, I'd first seen her in Antigua because I was racing on something else, and I saw her at the end of a jetty and thought, "Wow, that's a, a beautiful boat." Um, and uh, she always stayed in my mind. When I saw her again. Uh, some some years later, I thought to myself, this is uh, some 10 years later, this is uh, a great opportunity, and she happened to be um, looking for somebody to buy into her, so I did that. 
Now, did you buy her yourself, or did you go in with another partner and buy the boat? Originally, I was in with a partner. In fact, it was someone who, who came from a motorboating background and had just fallen in love with the uh, fall in love with Savannah, and then, but but wasn't uh, wasn't really a sailor, uh, and she is a sailor's boat, and you need to. Um, and she's very she's very powerful when she's uh, when she's uh, f- full sail, and so he pretty quickly left the scene, and I bought him out and ended up with with full ownership. So that suits us very well, and we cruise and we race her in equal measure. We we go all over the Mediterranean, and as I say, we've been up to the UK. Um, and she's uh, she's a she's a very kindly she's a, a, a seaworthy boat, and um, and we we thoroughly enjoy her. So when you get up to the UK, you have to go across the Bay of Biscay. You can't sneak up through the canals in that boat. That's way too big for the canals. Well, it's just the it's it's the it's the wear and tear and removing the mast and um, uh, all of those things. It's just as just as well to go around and go through the Bay of Biscay. And if you um, well, you probably done it many times and it's if you if you get the weather windows right it can be quite a kindly and uh, and fast passage now i've never actually been up there i've i sailed across in 97 uh from the states to the mediterranean my boat's been in the mediterranean since then so no i've never actually made it up there i've uh this summer i sailed in scandinavia on another friend's boat so not my own boat so no you've got more experience than i do in that area how much of the sailing season or how much time do you t- tend to spend every summer sailing? Well, I think it's uh, that's a good question. I mean, in my mind, I'm probably sailing every day, but, uh, but certainly in practice, we spend anything up to 60 nights on board. And uh, we will uh, we'll cross the Mediterranean. There's still whole areas that, that you know that I haven't yet discovered. I haven't sailed. It's difficult to say to say this and be taken seriously, but I haven't sailed in Croatia on Savannah, and uh, you know you know how beautiful that is. Uh, but we do uh, we've spent a lot of time going around Greece, a lot of time around Italy, Sicily, Corsica, obviously the south of France. We wherever the regattas take us, there just aren't any regattas currently in um, in Croatia. So you primarily like to sail in in uh, in regattas then. I think it's a very it's a very good reason to to go somewhere. I think when you when you go to it's like going to a city that you don't know and uh, and finding that there's somebody there who knows the territory and can introduce you. And I think Corsica is a very good example. We know Corsica, but we we never knew Corsica as well as we discovered it again when we were doing this Corsica Classic, which when it's organised by locals and you can go to places where otherwise you'd have to be on a waiting list for uh, for a berth or you're not allowed into a particular area or you're not allowed into a particular house because of, for example in Corsica there's uh, Napoleon's birthplace and the, uh, the Maison Bonaparte which is uh, which is the, the former family house you you wouldn't normally be able to get into some of the areas we saw and I think I think the regattas with the access it gives you is a very good way of discovering some of these countries and some of these beautiful sailing destinations. Well, let's talk about uh, a, a typical regatta. It could be the Corsica Classic. It could be another one. Let's just walk through the, the routine. You sign up for the regatta. About how many months in advance do you start planning your summer sail? About um, two, three months? No, next year is already planned. And uh, uh, about a year in advance. The season, we finished our season's racing uh, for uh, 
for a variety of reasons, but uh, but it's still going on. We're currently, as as I speak to you, we're in the middle of the Can Regatta. Then then there's the um, Saint Tropez Regatta, the Voile de Saint Tropez, at the end of the month and uh, through into end of the first week in, uh, in in October. And there's maybe one or two small regattas after that, but effectively that's the season. You're already planning your refit work and where you uh, and where you race next year. So we'll start off in May in Saint-Tropez with, uh, uh, with a small regatta really to give the boat a shakedown. And then we'll move to Antibes. And then from there, we'll move to Argentario on the, uh, on the coast of Italy. And, um, and then we will make a decision as to whether we go around to do Spetses in Greece uh, or we come back and do one of the super yacht regattas in or around Portocello. And then following, following that, we shall probably head to uh, either Barcelona or Mahon in Menorca, uh, and we will uh, we'll race there as well. And in between, we'll have some good cruising, I'm sure. So the typical regatta is how many days? Well, the typical, typical regatta is, um, is six days in total, of which four or five are racing. Uh, and the, the one that's on at the moment in Cannes, the Regatta Royale, is actually um, is actually six days racing, and the Corsica Classic was seven days racing, but it was very much um, passage racing, which is which is different than just going out to the same piece of water every day. But the regatta is normally about five days. Um, you arrive and uh, check in. It's you can you can book in at the last moment, really, uh, probably a, 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 unless you've got a particularly uh, populated class. You can uh, you can register some uh, three weeks perhaps before a regatta happens, and if they've got room, they'll fit you in. And uh, they're particularly attracted to uh, to the older the boat, the better. A lot of these boats, classic boats, are coming up for you know, 70, 80, 90, even over 100 years old, and um, and they're very uh, they're, they're a real spectacle. And there's a uh, there's a committed. Um, a crew of enthusiasts who will go around and who are restoring these boats, and it's beautiful to watch. So they they register on the first evening, and the skippers' briefings normally happen on the first evening or in the morning the next day. And then you will go out for, um, I think the shortest course I've seen is about 12 miles, and the, the longest course is probably about 26, 30 miles. And depending on the winds, that can take anything from an hour and a half to, to six hours probably. So um, the race committees are very very professional. They they tend to come off the meter yachts, uh, or you have a lot of experience in the meter yachts, so the 12 meters, the six meters, the eight meters. So those are uh, those are highly contested classes, and a lot of the race committees are uh, internationally qualified. So the, the regattas tend to be very well, uh, very well administered and very well orchestrated. Um, so it's very simple to enter. They're very simple to get to. They're very they arrange. Um, all the berthing in some of the most picturesque Mediterranean ports, and they provide a good uh, shore entertainment for the evening. And they welcome. I've looked down the Voile d'Antibes, for example, which happens at the beginning of June, and seen uh, I think it's 15 different nationalities represented. Uh, and there are some very good uh, some very good yachts from America as well. So um, uh, so I, I would I would encourage people to come if they have a boat they feel would uh, would fit in with that community. Now you're also a member of uh, other yacht clubs in Britain, aren't you? Yes, there are a number of yacht clubs, but they uh, they they all do slightly different things. I have um, 
I have a dinghy, uh, a dinghy club on the south coast of England where, where I have a home. Um, there is uh, the Royal Yacht Squadron, which is in Cowes, which is currently challenging uh, for the uh, Louis Vuitton Challenge Trophy for the America's Cup. So we have a fantastic team uh, led by Ben Ainsley, who is um, uh, who's, who's challenging for that. And they've just completed their penultimate regatta in Toulon, uh, which was two weekends ago. And the next stop is Japan to see who will be allowed to qualify uh, to to challenge Oracle in the Americas Cup. So there are so different different yacht clubs for for different purposes. And we the boat, as I say, lives in Saint Tropez, so we remember the local yacht clubs there. Each of them has a different personality, but they all share a passion for sailing, and they all have, uh, funnily enough, regardless of the nationality, everyone seems to have exactly the same motivation. And um, it's a very social sport. I don't need to tell you that, uh, but it's a very social sport. You'll always see someone lifting a hand to wave, and you'll always see somebody stopping for a conversation about the boats, and it's just a very... Uh, it's a, it's a, I find that the, the different yacht clubs have exactly the same people in them. Think back over your years as sailing on various regattas, and if you can remember your most terrifying experience, can you relate that to us? Well, um, some of the some of the uh, some of the regattas we've done in uh, the Fastnet race uh, was was something we frequently did. Uh, not in Savannah; uh, it's not really a Fastnet raceway, but but certainly some of the really big seas you see uh, in the Irish Sea. Um, I think they they are uh, uh, they're, they're sort of designed to um, uh, test your test your confidence. Um, but by far the biggest was actually in the Mediterranean because the Mediterranean is a sea which anyone will tell you because of the the geology of it. Um, it, it the, the water changes very very quickly and the weather changes very quickly. And coming out of um, uh, Cannes, the Regatta Royale, around this time, uh, three or four years ago, actually on Savannah. It's a very close, uh, very close race between ourselves and the J-Class Shamrock, and we were off in front of the pack, jibing very slowly with a with absolutely leaden grey sky over us. And we were all—you could just feel both crews, and there were uh, lots of us on both crews, very experienced crews, looking at the skies, just wondering what this incredibly black sky was on a on a sea with hardly any wind. So we're ghosting along under what looked like a huge tempest above us, and we both had spinnakers up, and we'd both come to the point that we um, uh, we, were, we were at the end of the week, and there was all to play for between the two boats, so it's real competition. And, um, well, obviously, if it was uh, the most... Uh, uh, hostile environment you could be in, you know what happened next. The, the sky just dropped to the surface of the water. Um, we were in, uh, we were in well over 40 knots um, it, almost instantly. Uh, certainly on Shamrock and for us, both spinnakers blew straight out. Um, and uh, we to watch both crews fighting to keep control in uh, in, in that condition and the whole storm. Uh, which was accompanied by uh, this is end of summer. It was, it was accompanied by hail and then strong rain and very high winds and no visibility. Um, the boats had started maybe 50 meters apart when we lost visibility, and when visibility came back again, I think there was about uh, a mile and a half between us. As we both got together, the storm passed through, and we um, and we we were able to sort of set our sails and sail on and finish the race. But uh, when we got off at the other end, we all looked at each other and felt that we'd really been through a, a washing machine, uh, which only the Mediterranean seems capable of serving up at almost no notice. 
So that was the moment, I think, that you think to yourself, well, I'm glad I've got a boat that, uh, that I trust under me. Sounds like an adventure, a true adventure. And I always notice that you always, <laughs> your, most, your, your best stories come from your, uh, your most terrifying experiences, I think. Tell me how the Corsica Classic compares to other regattas that you've been on. Well, I mean, it's a good question because it is different. Um, one, it's a passage race regatta. It's, it seems to me that it's the first year that we've done it was this year, and it was, uh, it's clearly organized more by the, the tourist board of Corsica than it is by, um, you know, by, uh, by dedicated yacht racing uh, enthusiasts. And that means that you get to see some of the most beautiful parts of, uh, parts of the Corsican coast. If you if you know Corsica, if you've stopped there, it's an incredible island. Anyway, it's very beautiful, um, but it has it has almost constant wind, including at the at southern end where it uh, where it comes close to uh, Sardinia, which is the Straits of Bonifacio, and it is it's notoriously windy there. So it has really good conditions to test sailors of all abilities, um, but it has beautiful beaches, which are I, I think I think are rare in the Mediterranean. But these are some of the most beautiful. Um, and great beach restaurants and a sense of um, uh, a, a, a very relaxed attitude to life and amazing organization. So if you see this rather more than a yacht regatta than a passage race um, around Corsica with five classes totaling about 35 boats uh, for, for gaff rigs, two classes of gaff rigs, two classes, two classes of uh, sloops um, and, and a spiritual tradition class. Uh, fantastically organized by, uh, by a local Corsican called uh, Dibo Assault and, um, and really well supported by about 10 to 15 support boats, people who, who cruise in the Mediterranean but don't necessarily want to race and are happy to pay the probably 150 euro entry fee to be allowed into the ports and to be part of the regatta. It's really very, it's very reasonably priced and the, and the hospitality is very well arranged. Each day you do a passage race of uh, between 12 and um, probably 20, 25 miles. Uh, the winds are normally, uh, it's normally a reaching course, especially the longer passage races. So it's uh, its not massively onerous. There's not, not a lot of round-the-can type racing. And it's um, uh, and it, the, the race committee is incredibly professional. And you get to stop in some of the best sites in the Mediterranean. It's, uh, it's a privilege. I mean, you, this happens in August, which is a time when it's almost impossible to get berths in some of these ports. And wherever you go to these ports, you're in pole position. So it's, um, I, I think it's different from other regattas. It's, uh, but as a, as a way of exploring Corsica and a way of uh, perhaps if you haven't got a racing boat, you've got a cruising boat, but you want to be part of this classic yacht uh, environment it happens every year it's at the end of august um and it's a very it's a very relaxed regatta which is why i thought it was the thing to do with my children for their first experience so it was um corinthian is a good way to describe it so you're going from port to port to port did you go down the east coast the west coast what was the route this year well, you start in Ajaxia, which is the which is the capital. Which is, if you think of Corsica as a rather elongated clock, it's at about nine o'clock, and uh, you then work your way down. Uh, you have two overnight stops before you get to the the really impressive southernmost port, uh, which is Bonifacio, which is Bonifacio, 
which is a uh, uh, one of the most breathtaking harbors in the in the world. And um, and then you carry on racing around the six o'clock of the clock through the Straits of Bonifacio and up the other side, up the eastern side of uh, Corsica. And uh, you get up to a place called uh, Porto Vecchio. And then you come back down towards Bonifacio for the um, for, for the end of the for the end of the week. So in each in each between all the major stops, you might stop overnight and hang off the beach. And so you have the entire fleet hanging off the beach, and then they arrange beach parties. And um, the local the, the local restaurants open the doors, and, um, and and everyone's looked after. So yes, you get to race it both ways. And uh, you have you have a good look, effectively, from from middle of the west coast to middle of the east coast and back again in the course of the week. So, do you stop at Bonifacio twice? Yes, you do. Um, in fact, you have uh, you have three nights in Bonifacio in total. And I think if uh, if anyone if you know anyone who's who's even thinking of going there, that's an incredibly difficult port to get into uh, because it's so crowded. It's one of the most impressive. And it is, um, uh, and it's a real privilege to be able to be there with a regatta of beautiful boats, um, absolutely in pole position in a port like that. And uh, it's very special. And in fact, they have the prize giving at the end of the week and the um, and the farewell party up on the battlements, a place that no one else is allowed to go to. And um, it's all a very special experience. And they do it very well. That sounds like a lot of fun. I've been to Bonifacio a couple times, and you are right. It is probably the most spectacular port in the entire Mediterranean. It's uh, it's picture perfect, and it's a little tiny, fully protected harbor on the inside, but it's long and narrow, and it's it's spectacular. So it sounds like a lot of fun to go there, especially when it, with a group like that. It's great, and there's a very good camaraderie between the, between the crews. Everyone helps, and um, I couldn't rec- recommend it more as a, uh, uh, as a very relaxed way of, uh, I would say, performance cruising. Now, the Corsica Classic, that's really a, a regatta designed for classic yachts. And what do they consider classic yachts? Is there a certain size, a minimum size that they're looking for, or is it uh, just more of the, the traditional look of the boat? I would say it's uh, in a perfect world, you'd, they would go for a purely classical, classic yachts, which are, which are effectively um, anything from, a, as, a, as I've said elsewhere, some 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years old, or probably 70, 80, 90, 100 years old. But there are some, some other boats that, that look like classics. Um, and I would add in that some of the original 12-meter yachts, um, which are now eligible to race, as is Savannah, in a class called Spirit of Tradition, which is that they, it, it effectively um, is... It, 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 it basically encompasses the... The classic look, classic materials, classic style. If uh, what you can't have is an out-and-out racing boat uh, in that in that class, it has to look broadly as if it's uh, as if it's a classic boat. So um, the the sim, the CIM, which is the handicap system for um, for the original classic boats, simply wouldn't be able to rate the modern ones. So the modern ones race with an IRC rating. Uh, and so the IRC rating is the same one that would take them that would race in a modern fleet. And so you normally have uh, probably the spirit of tradition fleet can be up to 15 yachts. So there's good racing, but they are they do tend to be of boats tend to be of different sizes. And then certainly in the classic fleet, fleet it can go from 
140 feet down to probably 30. All right. So tell me what your plans are for next summer. Well, we'll do. Um, we're gonna, we've decided to stay in the Mediterranean. Uh, we've decided to do uh, more racing. We, we've, we've stopped early this year, um, and so we will do. We will do. We will start off in Saint Tropez. We'll go to Antibes. Uh, we'll we'll then go down to Argentario in Italy. Uh, this is another Panerai circuit. Uh, come back across to to Palma in Mallorca, Mahon, Barcelona. We might come back and do um, Porto Trevo, which is a Super Yacht and uh, then we um, then we come back to uh, we come, we come back to the south coast of France and we do uh, Cannes, which is a superb classic regatta, and then Saint Tropez, which is our final uh, final big regatta of the season, which will happen at the end of September, beginning of October, and then uh, maybe the year after we'll we'll come across the Atlantic and have a look down the uh, have a look down the east coast and see whether we can find a welcome port or two around there. It'd be nice to bring Savannah home. So, Hugh, I really appreciate your time. I hope at some point in time, while I'm sailing through the Mediterranean, our paths will cross. I know I will recognize your boat, but I'm not sure you'll see my boat. So if you ever see a little a little Lyle Hess designed Bristol Channel cutter sailing around named Sea Dream, come over and say hello. I certainly will. Um, you've got a great reputation. I've seen your boat. It's beautiful, and I look forward to us hooking up in the future. Thanks, you. Thanks so much for being on. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.